0: Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel and Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federalist Society member
1: today at fedsoc.org. Welcome, everyone, to this Federalist Society virtual event. As this afternoon, March 10, 2022, we're hosting a Courthouse Steps Decision Webinar yes, decisions are starting to come down on a case called Cameron, the EMW Women's Surgical Center. I'm Nick Marr, Assistant Director of Practice Groups here at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that expressions of opinion on our call today are those of our expert. We're very pleased to be joined today uh, by a lawyer practicing in the Sixth Circuit. Um, he uh, knows this case pretty well, and we're very glad to have him here. I'm just gonna give him a short introduction and he'll take away reviewing the case talking about the implications and we'll be looking to you, the audience for questions after that. So if you have them now, or if you get, you know, if a question comes to you during the program, please submit that via the chat function and we'll take it from there. We're very pleased to be joined today uh, by Philip Williamson. He's a partner at the law firm of Taft, Statinius, and Hollister, I believe in Cincinnati. Is that right? Yes sir. Uh, And so with that, Phil, thanks very much for being with us. The floor is yours. Thanks, Nick. Um, It is
0: is a pleasure to be on, and uh, thank you to all of you for for joining and and, uh, letting me chat for a bit today. Uh, So, we we recently got the decision, as Nick said, uh, in Cameron uh, versus EMW, and, you know, I'll start with the big headline for everyone who has to hop off in the first five minutes. A district court in Kentucky enjoined enforcement of an abortion regulation uh, in a suit against the Kentucky governor's office. A divided Sixth Circuit panel affirmed, and after that Sixth Circuit decision, the governor declined to seek en banc review or to petition for a writ of certiorari. Uh, When the governor announced that decision, uh, the Kentucky Attorney General moved to intervene in order to exhaust those appellate remedies, uh, and the panel denied that motion. In in an opinion by Justice Alito, the Supreme Court reversed uh, that intervention decision, 8-1. What we got was a, a short, crisp opinion that really unfolds in, in three parts. Uh, part one is, is the question of how in the world did we get here and how did we end up with an intervention case on the, on the court's docket? Uh, part two is establishing whether the Sixth Circuit in fact had jurisdiction to intervene, to entertain the motion to intervene. And given that there is a part three, I think the spoiler alert here is yes, the, the court did have jurisdiction. Uh, and so the back half of the opinion deals with the, the standard for intervention. The opinion, the majority opinion by Justice Alito uh, was joined by all of the usual suspects, uh, the Chief Justice, Justice Thomas, Gorsuch, Barrett, Kavanaugh, and I am certain that I am blanking on someone. It drew a, a separate concurrence from Justice Thomas. Uh, he joined the majority opinion, but also wrote to address a jurisdictional issue. A separate concurrence from Justice Kagan, who was joined by Justice Breyer. Uh, again, kind of some disagreements with the majority on, uh, on how they framed the intervention issue. Uh, and then a solo dissent from, from Justice Sotomayor. Uh, so we'll start with, with part one of the that opinion. That's how we got here. In 2018, Kentucky passed a statute regulating uh, dilation and extraction abortions. EMW, an abortion provider, sued the Secretary of Health and Family Services Cabinet, uh, which is an agency of the governor's office, uh, and EMW sued the Attorney General. uh, Sued both in their capacity as uh, potential enforcers of the the abortion regulation. Now, in Kentucky, the governor and the Attorney General are separately, separately elected, which ends up featuring pretty prominently in how this case unfolds. So in 2008, or sorry, in 2018, Kentucky had a Republican governor and a Democratic attorney general. The attorney general was Andy Beshear. The attorney general was dismissed from that suit without prejudice. Uh, And of importance here, the attorney general agreed to be bound by any final judgment subject to modification, reversal, or vacation on appeal. And the attorney general reserved the right to, quote, all rights, claims, and defenses relating to whether he is a proper party in this action, and in any appeals arising out of this action. The secretary at the governor's direction and represented by Matt Kuhn in the governor's counsel's office, defended the statute. A district court judge enjoined the statute after a bench trial and the secretary appealed. During the appeal, Kentucky elected Attorney General Bashir as the new governor and then elected a Republican attorney general. Uh, So you still have uh, a, a party split between the two offices, but they have essentially flipped control. The governor naturally appointed a new secretary of the Health and Family Services cabinet, but actually continued the appeal and defense of Kentucky statute. But rather than handling that litigation himself, uh, the governor actually retained the attorney general's office as counsel to handle the continued litigation. And in a funny turn of events, uh, Matt Kuhn had actually moved from the governor's office to the attorney general's office. So he stepped in to brief and argue the appeal. Uh, and so what you have is is basically a change of the office responsible for running the litigation, uh, but the whole time it it remains in in my good friend Matt's hands. You had a divided panel of the Sixth Circuit, which affirmed the district court and and upheld the injunction against uh, this Kentucky statute. Uh, the secretary then announced that he was not going to seek a banc rehearing or petition for certiorari, but did not oppose the attorney general taking over the case to exhaust those remedies. Uh, so the attorney general's office, again, acting through Matt, uh, withdrew as counsel for the secretary and then moved to intervene as a party in his own right. Uh, the attorney general's office also tendered a petition for en banc rehearing within the 14 day window that an existing party would have had uh, to file that petition. Uh, so what you see is sort of no change to the appellate schedule, no change to the lawyers involved in the case, uh, but a change in, again, the office seeking to defend the statute. That same divided Sixth Circuit panel denied the motion to intervene for three reasons. Uh, First, they thought that the motion was untimely because it came after years of litigation and after the panel had already issued its decision in the appeal. Uh, Second, the panel thought that the Attorney General had no substantial legal interest in intervening uh, because he sought to pursue two discretionary and rarely granted forms of review, an on re-hearing and a petition for cert. And third, the panel thought that intervention uh, would actually prejudice the plaintiffs, would prejudice uh, EMW in that case, because it included an argument on third-party standing that may or may not have been raised below. Uh, That's actually an ongoing matter of dispute that'll probably be resolved in in some of the further proceedings. So the Supreme Court granted cert on the question of whether the Attorney General should have been permitted to intervene. So that's section one, Uh, section two, deals with whether the sixth circuit actually had jurisdiction to entertain that motion to intervene in the first place. Uh, this was incidentally the only point that attracted any amicus support for EMW uh, and it was a position that was unanimously rejected by the Supreme Court. EMW argued that the motion to intervene was jurisdictionally barred. Uh, this was a new argument that was raised for the first time with the court and, and EMW argued basically that typically a non-party who is bound by a district court judgment, as the attorney general agreed to be here, uh, can file a notice of appeal of that judgment within the sort of usual rule three and rule four time limits. And because a non-party can obtain appellate review that way, EMW argued that a non-party shouldn't be able to circumvent those time limits by moving to intervene after the deadline has already passed. Uh, So EMW argued the attorney general was a non-party bound by the judgment, could have filed a notice of appeal, it didn't, uh, so his motion to intervene should have been treated as an untimely notice of appeal and rejected on that on that basis. The Supreme Court had absolutely none of that. Uh, the court noted that uh now a quote here: we do not read a statute or rule to impose a jurisdictional requirement unless its language clearly does so. And there's no clear provision of law here that limits the Court of Appeals jurisdiction to hear a motion to intervene, or at least not in the way that EMW asked. Uh, the court reasoned that what EMW really wanted was a mandatory claims processing. But claims processing rules are not jurisdictional. uh, And so it was waived below and the court was not not going to entertain it. Uh, But for good measure, and in the interest of of giving guidance to lower courts, I'm sure uh, the court also explained why EMW's argument wasn't persuasive. Uh, And that was relying on the attorney general's original reservation of rights, which we talked about in in section one, uh, which included retaining the right to all claims and defenses in any appeals arising out of this action. And that reservation, the court reasoned, easily covers the right to seek an en banc re-hearing or petition for cert. And of course, the attorney general had only agreed to be bound by whatever version of the final judgment emerged after all appellate review had been completed. So with jurisdiction out of the way, the court moved on to part three, uh, which was the merits of intervention itself. Uh, the court first noted that there's no statute or rule that creates a general standard for deciding whether to allow an interventional appeal. Uh, so if we have any practitioners or academics uh, who are looking for a good topic, uh, you might spend some time musing out loud about whether we need an intervention rule for, for the appellate courts, and if so, what that rule ought to say. But in the absence of a rule, the court has historically relied on the policies that underlie intervention in district courts. Uh, including, and in this case, most importantly, the interest that the party is seeking to protect through intervention. In Cameron, the interest was a big one. And I think uh, an interest that matters to to all of us uh, at the federal Society is kind of at the core of of the Society's mission. And that's the state's sovereign interest in enforcing and defending its duly enacted statutes. Uh, That means that a, a state's opportunity to defend its laws in federal court the Supreme Court said, should not be lightly cut off. The court highlighted that a key element of state sovereignty is the state's right to structure its executive branch. And in particular, to designate multiple officials to defend its sovereign interest in court. So here, Kentucky had empowered both the Secretary of the Cabinet of Health and Family Services, uh, and really in that that instance, the governor, uh, and the Attorney General to defend its sovereign interests. Uh, if I remembering the argument correctly, uh, the attorney general couched this as uh, Kentucky creating a fail-safe to ensure that it's, its laws are always defended and that if the state is actually going to withdraw from litigation, you really have to persuade multiple offices uh, to give up the fight. Uh, the court suggests that as a constitutional matter, federal courts are duty-bound to respect the choices that states make about how to organize their executive branch and how they are going to assign litigation authority. This was the chief point, I think, uh, where the majority and the Kagan and Breyer dissent disagree. Uh, For Justices Kagan and Breyer, this isn't really a constitutional question, it's just an important interest, Uh, but for the majority, it, it is a matter of constitutional federalism that that federal courts must respect a state's and heavily weigh a state's interest in defending its own laws. And so the chief error that the Sixth Circuit made uh, was discounting the attorney general's interest in taking up its defense of a state statute. Now in a footnote, uh, the court addressed the attorney general's prior dismissal and points out when the attorney general was originally sued, he was sued in his official capacity as someone who could enforce uh, Kentucky's regulation. When he came back uh, on appeal to intervene, he was intervening in his capacity as chief law officer for the Commonwealth, and as the office principally charged with defending state statutes. With that in mind, uh, the court said, the rest of the intervention factors also favored the attorney general, uh, namely timeliness and the absence of prejudice to any of the other parties. The, The court, I think, reasonably held that the attorney general was timely because he sought to intervene as soon as it was clear that Kentucky's sovereign interests would no longer be protected by the parties in the case. There was no need to intervene when the secretary was still defending the statute, uh, particularly when the secretary had hired the AG to litigate the case. But once the secretary decided to withdraw, uh, the attorney general very promptly moved to intervene. Um, and as we noted uh, in the first section, actually filed a petition for en banc rehearing within the timeline uh, normally required for, for existing parties to, to petition. Um, and so you didn't actually see any change to the litigation schedule uh, on account of the attorney general's intervention. As to prejudice, the court noted that the third party standing issue wasn't the only issue in the rehearing petition. Um, and that the secretary actually could have raised third party standing himself if he had been the one to file the on uh, rehearing petition, and it would have left the Sixth Circuit in the same position it's in now, uh, which is deciding whether that third-party standing argument was waived. Uh EMW also argued that uh, they had a reasonable expectation that when Bashir was elected governor, owing to his sort of pre-existing and campaign commitments uh, to abortion rights, they had a reasonable expectation that he would in fact drop the suit uh, and so EMW, in fact, would not have to continue to litigate and, and could enjoy the fruits of their injunction. And, and the court uh, spent about a paragraph explaining that this is not the kind of reasonable expectation uh, that that we take seriously when evaluating prejudice in a motion to intervene. Uh, Justice Thomas uh, added a short concurrence uh, he joined the majority opinion in full but wrote separately to talk about uh, the jurisdictional question uh, making the elementary observation that only parties can appeal under the, the uh, federal rules of appellate procedure and that the attorney general had ceased to be a party when he was dismissed at the beginning of the case. And so rather than treating the motion to intervene as an untimely notice of appeal, uh, Justice Thomas points out the attorney general never could have filed a notice of appeal in the first place. Uh, he, Justice Thomas does not believe that a non-party bound by a judgment actually has a right to appeal. Appeals, in his view, are reserved for parties. Justice Kagan also wrote a separate concurrence. Uh, She did not join the majority opinion, uh, though her concurrence is actually really similar to the majority opinion. She she took EMW's anti-circumvention concern a little more seriously. Uh, This idea that a party shouldn't be able to agree to be bound by a judgment, decide not to appeal, and then move to intervene after an appellate decision comes down. Uh, She thought that was a a serious concern, uh, but not one really implicated here, because in this case, the attorney general did not appeal because he didn't need to. The substantive function of defending state statute was capably in the secretary's hands until it wasn't. Uh, Kagan's sort of chief disagreement with the majority was over whether to frame the attorney general's interest as a constitutional interest in defending the state statute or merely a really good reason to allow intervention. Uh, and lastly, you had Justice Sotomayor uh, writing a loan in dissent and for her, the bottom line is that she thinks the attorney general should have been bound by his early dismissal and should not have been able to re-enter a case years after it's already begun. Uh, it's important to note she didn't buy the jurisdictional argument from EMW uh, but she did fault the attorney general for seeking dismissal in 2018 on a theory that he wasn't actually an officer who could enforce the statute, and then seeking to re-enter the case to defend that statute uh, after the Sixth Circuit had, had issued a decision. Uh, and, and so for her, it was not, it was principally a matter of whether intervention was justified. Um, not really a question of whether it was even permissible or if the Sixth Circuit had discretion to do it. I think. A a couple of the big takeaways here uh, are, are number one, uh, the federalism question of how do we treat a state interest in defending its laws and to whom is that interest committed? So if you frame this case, and, and I think Justice Sotomayor's dissent probably makes more sense. If you frame the case as a lawsuit against The governor's office or against the secretary of health and services uh, or against the attorney general but the majority somewhat subtly instead frame this case really as a suit against the commonwealth of kentucky seeking to invalidate one of its laws and the commonwealth has the right to defend and vindicate its interests in its own statutes through essentially whichever officers it chooses to give that authority uh, and so uh, for particularly for those of you uh, practicing in state law or working for state governments this case in, and if we have any state legislators on the on the call or anyone advising state legislators uh, I think this case is, is really a call to think seriously about how your state structures, uh, the office is responsible for defending state law. The court has signaled that it is willing to defer to whatever choices a state makes, but that it will also hold a state to the choices that it makes. Uh, so this case, I think, differs a little bit from uh, from the Virginia uh, election suit a couple of years ago, where the Virginia legislature sought to intervene in a case after the governor and attorney general ha- had ceased defending a state statute. And the court essentially said, look, Virginia gets to choose its officers that, that will defend its statutes. It didn't choose the legislature. So the legislature is not going to not going to be permitted to intervene here. Um, whereas in, in Cameron, uh, Kentucky had, in fact, given the attorney general uh, an interest in defending state statutes. And so we're going to permit the we're going to respect that choice and, and permit the attorney general to intervene. Uh, the other, I think, is the, the way, the other key issue here is the way that the court framed timeliness when considering a motion to intervene. Uh, the court doesn't seem terribly troubled by how long litigation has gone on prior to a motion to intervene. Uh, timeliness is really measured from when the intervening party first understands it might need to intervene to defend its interest, uh, or that the existing parties to the case are not adequately protecting its interests. So again, for for all you courts practitioners, uh, this this case is again, I think a serious call to just take a careful look at the way that you think about intervention, the way that you watch dockets. The court will be forgiving if you're prompt once you figure out that that you have an interest that needs to be uh, protected. Uh, So with that, I think I have talked long enough uh, and and I'm happy to take some questions and talk some more.
1: Well, thanks very much, Phil. Um, that was a really great overview. Uh, I definitely learned some parts of the procedure and background I didn't know. Um, so I appreciate that. Another reminder to our audience, we're looking to you for questions uh, now in a couple minutes and now. So please send those via the chat function or the uh, chat Q&A function. Um, we'll get it either way and, and be able to review it. So. Uh, one question I had is kind of, I know you touched on the, the implications going forward, discussing how states, you know, the court has shown a, a willingness to defer to states and how they choose to enforce their laws, to whom they give that power. But they're going to hold the state to those choices. You know, this this case, I think, got a lot of attention because... It involved, even though it involved a law, it was a procedural issue. It involved the issue of abortion. Um, going forward, the Supreme Court has a big abortion case before it. Um, it may decide to uh, basically um, enable states to make all kinds of different abortion laws. Um, how, if any way, does this decision relate to that future Possibility, does that make sense? Yeah, um, so
0: I, I, look, this is the kind of issue that that is mostly going to come up in, in the abortion context. Uh, because generally speaking, most state officers, whether it's governor's office or attorney general's office, which tend to be the, the chief litigating units, um, and I think in all of our states, they, they do their jobs. Um, even if you don't like a law, you're duty-bound, oath-bound to defend it in court, to make you know, any non-frivolous argument in good faith in defense of the statute. Uh, and, and we count on our elected officials to do this. And there are basically three contexts where that doesn't happen. Um, that is abortion, abortion litigation. Um, it comes up in the context, uh, or at least came up in the context of lawsuits over marriage definitions, Uh, And then it comes up in election cases. And and then in those three cases, that's where you're most likely to see kind of these motions to intervene from other state officials and state officers who who want to defend state statutes. Uh, Where the rubber is gonna meet the road actually is in in who states decide to give this litigation authority to. So in Kentucky, this case arises only because the governor and attorney general are elected separately and the people of Kentucky put those offices in the hands of different, different political parties in two consecutive elections. Uh, this case does not arise if you have a Democratic attorney general and governor that entire six year stretch, uh, or if you have a Republican governor or Republican attorney general that entire, that, that entire stretch. It also has implications for states like Virginia, uh, when they had their election suit a few years ago, uh, North Carolina now, where you might have an executive branch that's entirely in one party's hands and a state legislature uh, of a different party, and a real disagreement over who's going to step in and defend state statutes there. Uh, so states with that kind of cohabitation might want to think seriously about uh, how they structure you know defense statutes. But the outcome of Dobbs is going to matter here. I couldn't tell you how because we don't yet know how how Dobbs is going to be resolved, but you know, Dobbs is in one of, like I said, just three contexts where where these intervention issues arise in the first
1: place. That's interesting. Uh, we've got a couple audience questions right now, actually, so we'll go to those. Uh, and please submit them via chat for the audience uh, if you have a question about this case, its implications, anything like that. Um, first question is um, kind of interesting. Why was there no conflict of interest by, by the AG, I presume, maybe for, you know, for the AG, uh, just explain the background.
0: Uh, I, I think in this case, a, a really admirable bit, an admirable bit of comedy uh, between the attorney general and governor's offices. Uh, when the governor announced that, that he would not be pursuing the appeal, uh, he agreed to waive conflicts for the attorney general's office to, to step in and continue to defend. I'm not sure that there would have been a, a bona fide conflict anyway, but the, the governor's office waived conflicts, said, look, we don't, we're not interested in defending this, but we know it needs to be done. Attorney General, you care, you carry
1: on. Great. Our next question is a great first principles question in the realm of federalism. What is the best way to determine which officers have the authority to defend a state's statutes? Great question.
0: Part of that is going to, is, is the simple question of, well, who's getting sued? Uh, if you get sued, you do get to defend the, the suit. And I think that's the principal reason why the governor was involved in this case in the first place. Uh, was that it was actually a, an agency of the governor's office uh, charged with enforcing the statute. And so if you want an injunction against enforcement, you got to sue the officer who's responsible for enforcement. Uh, beyond that, you, it means doing some digging uh, in your state's code. Uh, There is often an answer to that question, uh, particularly if the legislature has decided that someone besides the attorney general's office is going to be responsible for litigation in the state. Uh, You're going to find that somewhere uh, in your state code or in your state constitution. Uh, The other is, and and the principal reason why the attorney general often has this authority is most states will have language in the state constitution uh, or in the statute that creates the attorney general's office that says, you know, the attorney general shall be the chief legal officer of the state. Uh, It may assign some rights and responsibilities, but we generally understand that chief legal officer language to mean you are, you possess the state's litigation power.
1: Yeah, that makes sense, but we have a a comment or question, state freedom of information laws. Uh, I'm not sure if there's a question there, if there is a question, you can submit it, but maybe. This is as, as an example, or maybe the question is, what about state freedom of information acts? Who enforces that?
0: Uh, well, I, I read it as as an answer to the previous question, which is, you know, FOIA is is certainly one way uh, to to figure out who's who is responsible for doing litigation in the state.
1: Um, yeah, or the or the deep digging you mentioned, uh, exactly into the statutes. You know, the hard work. So. Um, just another, uh, call for audience questions here. Um, uh, w- w- a question I, I kind of like to ask this one in, in all rulings, uh, across the board, was there anything that surprised you about the ruling or about the breakdown or about, you know, anything in that regard, like kind of something striking? To be honest with you, I was surprised at how
0: straightforward the majority opinion was given that we tend to get a lot of complicated legalese, particularly when we're dealing with, with statutory or rule construction uh, or this odd intersection of statutory construction and, and policy decisions. Uh, but uh, and, I've, and I've always appreciated this about the way that Justice Leto writes. This case really was, like, what are our first principles and intuitions? So if you read the majority opinion, there are not a ton of cases cited in the opinion. Uh, It it is really an unfolding of, well, of course we think someone ought to be allowed to defend a state statute. And of course, if the governor raises his hand and says, I'm not going to do it, but the attorney general can do it, and it's fine with me if the attorney general does it, what in the world is is an appellate panel doing, saying, we don't want to hear it? and, and for me, so it was, it, for me, it was a, a refreshing application of common sense uh, in a profession that, uh, that often leaves it behind and buries it under a lot of I'm
1: uh, Kind of thinking a lot here, but um, you mentioned this kind of thing happens typically in three cases, and those three cases seem to involve, you know, important policy issues, important issues of politics. So whoever has voted into office They're just gonna set those policies. How does this schema and this kind of, the court's return to first principles, if you will, about law enforcement apply to, if in any way, state judges and those, especially those state judges who are elected. Does that make sense? Is is there any kind of uh, maybe lessons to learn there or, or anything like that? Uh, one, one overarching lesson of, of this case is
0: elections have consequences. Um, they, they just do. We're, we, are, we were in, in this case largely because of a change in control of the governor's office. Uh, so elections matter. Um, I think one implication, particularly for states that have elected judges, uh, is that you really do get opportunities to correct issues like this it is also the kind of case where you could have seen uh, like a motion to certify to a state Supreme Court to determine like who actually has litigation authority. Here. It would have been, I think, perfectly fair game for the Sixth Circuit to have asked the Kentucky Supreme Court, who's, who's in charge here? Yeah, elections have consequences.
1: Well, um, I'll offer another call for audience questions, but if we don't have any, um, we'll return everyone's half hour here. Um, well, Nick, did I answer yours or did I dodge it? Yeah. No, I think, I think that's, that's good. Very good. All right. Well, seeing none, uh, I want to thank you, Phil, on behalf of the, of the Federalist Society very much for your time and expertise today in covering this case for us. Uh, it was really valuable. I learned a lot. Thank you to our audience for, for dialing in here, for your great questions. Um, especially that first principles one, Um, keep an eye on your email and our website for announcements about upcoming calls like this one, uh, especially as we get more rulings um, coming down the pike. But until next time, until that next event, thank you all very much. We are adjourned.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.